Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18-31. through 31. Our topic will be Christ, the Wisdom of God. Our context is this, in the previous middle section of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has bemoaned all the division that he had heard about that existed in the Corinthian church, and he exhorted to unity. The last verse in the last section was verse 17. Paul had said this, I didn't come to baptize. He's trying to say I didn't baptize because if I had baptized people, people would have formed a party and that would have created division in the church. But you can't, don't form a party around Paul because I didn't even baptize anybody. I didn't come to baptize, I came to evangelize. And he says, I didn't come to evangelize with clever words. This is verse 17 of chapter 1. Not with clever words so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Now, with that phrase, clever words, he's talking about the rhetorical ability of the Greeks, their fascination with it, their obsession with it. And so he's going to contrast the Greek mindset, their attitude toward philosophy and rhetoric, with the preaching of the cross. We start with verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Now, of course, if you're a Greek philosopher, you hear something about a criminal getting condemned on a cross and then rising from the dead, you're going to go snort. And I have been, in my professional life, I've been a college professor for decades, and I've been in that atmosphere, and I know exactly how they think. They think they're smarter than God. They think they're smarter than anybody on earth. And they think that the message of Jesus Christ is absolute stupidity. It's just for common folks, just for rednecks just for po folks to believe, but not us intellectuals. We're too smart for that. I, I often have encountered that attitude. I think, yeah, you know, really dumb people believe in Jesus. People like Isaac Newton. Oh, yeah, he was really dumb, wasn't he? People like C.S. Lewis. People like Blaise Pascal, a devout Christian. You know, the guy that made the first mechanical computer. The programming language Pascal is named after him. Yeah, he was stupid. But at any rate, that's the way most intellectuals think about Jesus. We just believe a bunch of fairy tales. So yeah, the message of the cross, that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins, that's foolish to those whom? To whom? To those who are perishing. They're lost in their sins and they're dying. Perishing means they're about to die. That's what all. That's the sad state of all people who don't believe in Jesus. They're about to die not only physically but spiritually, separated from God forever. But this mention of the cross, on the contrary, is God's power to us who are being saved. And, of course, it takes power to save us wretched, nasty sinners, to deliver us from our sins, to raise us up from our death. It takes power to do that. We'll talk about power in just a little bit under a different verse. We go to verse 19, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul continues, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Paul is quoting here, Isaiah 29, verse 14. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise men will vanish, and the understanding of the perceptive will be hidden. Now, what's the context in Isaiah's time as he wrote that? Well, there were people in Judah that were seeking an alliance with Egypt to fight Sennacherib of Assyria, the nasty Assyrians. And Isaiah is telling them, no. Don't do that. These wise counselors, these big-shot government officials, no, their wisdom's going to vanish. So Paul takes that scripture and applies it to the typical Greek attitude towards philosophy. I'm wise. I can figure out the meaning of life, and I'm an expert. I've read Plato. I've read 
Aristotle. I've read the Stoics and the Epicureans, and I know the truth. No, they don't. They're fools, Paul says. Aristides, who I think is Aristides the Just, is what my notes is referring to here. He was the famous Greek. When was he operating? The early 6th century B.C.? The, uh, he was ostracized once by the opposing political party, and he ran into some guy, some p- poor guy, some not a big shot guy, who asked him to help him spell his name on the little piece of shell that they or the thing that they wrote the name down that they were to ostracize people with. And so Aristides helped him and then said, why are you doing this? He said, I'm tired of everybody calling this man the just or something to that effect. It's a famous story. I might have garbled the details a little bit. But anyway, this guy who knew about his culture, he said, this is what he said. You could find a wise man on any street in Corinth, a big shot, a philosopher. Everybody was a philosopher. Remember Paul in Athens, Acts 17, philosophers everywhere, and he's debating them. Well, what's going to happen to those people? What's going to happen to their philosophy? What's going to happen to their wisdom? God says, I will destroy it, and I will set their understanding aside. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? And that's exactly what it is, foolish. When he says, where's the philosopher? I'm convinced he's talking to about Greek philosophers here. Some people say, like Adam Clark says, he's talk, talking about Jewish thinkers. Because Clark says these words most manifestly refer to the Jews as in, in several places. Isaiah 29.14, Isaiah 33.18, Isaiah 44.25 to which Paul refers, cannot be understood of any but the Jews. Well, that's true. Originally, in the original context of Isaiah, it was referring to Jews, but I think Paul is referring it to Gentiles because he's in Corinth, a Greek city. And then he says, where's the scholar? Now, there he might be thinking about Jewish thinkers. He could be thinking about Greek scholars, too. Where's the debater of this age? Oh, did the Greeks love to debate? They would debate anything. You know, the sophists would take one side to debate it. Then they'd say, okay, I'm tired of arguing that side. Let's take exactly the opposite side and debate that. And God says, that's foolish. Yeah, it is foolish. Well, even Socrates said the sophists were foolish. (laughs) But, you know, God even says Socrates is foolish and Plato's foolish compared to the wisdom of God. I'll tell you my personal experience with foolish philosophy. I've always been interested in philosophy, actually, even when I was a kid. A young, young guy in high school, college, and I read a little bit of it. And I didn't have time to pursue it. I said, one of these days I will. So just recently, I got Copleston's History of Philosophy, nine volumes worth, and read it straight through, which has got to be one of the most painful things I've ever done. And finally, I started thinking when I was getting, it started in the pre-Socratics in the 6th century B.C. or maybe 7th or 6th century B.C. and went all the way up to 1960 with Sartre and the Existentialist. And I'm thinking, you know what? These people are the stupidest people that have ever existed to spend all their time quibbling and fighting with each other. They start out trying to figure out whether there is a meaning to the universe. And then when they can't find that, they find, is there, can we even know anything? Are we so caught up with, tied to our senses that we can't know anything objectively true, like love and truth and honor and God? And Well, we don't believe in God, so let's just try to figure out how we can get knowledge just with our senses and our minds. And we start when we go to the mind to try to find out something. Then we go to our senses, and then we try to put them together. And then we finally say, "To heck with that! They ain't, there's no all these rational." Well, let's try mathematics. Well, that didn't work. Nothing's worked. So now let's just be skeptics and talk about everything's dead. God is dead. Nietzsche. And then let's well, let's just just find meaning for 
because we think it's meaning existentialist and finally that you end up in total narcissism and stupidity and that's what's happened with philosophy folks quit if you ever have a desire to find the truth go to jesus christ he is the truth as we'll see in a minute he is the wisdom of god the NIV Study Bible puts it this way, quote, All humanly devised philosophical systems end in meaninglessness because they have a wrong concept of God and his revelation. Hear, hear. Here's another quote from Isaiah 44:25: God, who destroys the omens of the false prophets and makes fools of the diviners, who confounds the wise and makes their knowledge foolishness. All right, one last point about verse 20. Where's the debater of this age? I mentioned it was the Greeks, and I'm sure it was, but it could also refer to... Jews who debate in the synagogue, as Jameson Fawcett brought, point out. It doesn't really matter whether Paul is referring to Jews or Greeks. He's pointing out that everybody's foolish. Whether you're Jew or Greek, those were the two main cultures of his time. It doesn't matter. You don't believe in Jesus, you ain't going to get wisdom. You're going to be walking around like a bunch of stupid fools. We go to verse 21, 1 Corinthians 1. For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom... God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Now, of course, Paul is speaking ironically. The message is not foolishness. It's just foolishness in the eyes of God. The world did not know God through wisdom because they tried to get to God through philosophy, and as a result, they didn't know God. And that doesn't mean they didn't know that God existed, as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. God did exist. People can know that God exists, but they don't know who he is. They don't know how to serve him. They don't know his characteristics. They don't know anything about him through their philosophy. Here's what Jesus says about people wise with philosophy. Luke 10, 21, In that same hour he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise. You're not going to get to God through philosophy, folks. And Jesus said it. You have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and have revealed them to infants, i.e. people that are infant in philosophy. They're not big shots. They're just the average Joe that can understand basic words. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. It was God's good pleasure to receive the, to, to, to give the message of salvation to the world, not to the high and the mighty, but to the common man. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown about people not knowing God through their wisdom. Quote, the deistic theory that man can, by the light of nature, discover his duty to God is disproved by the fact that man has never discovered it without revelation. All the stars and moon cannot make it day. That is the prerogative of the sun. Nor can nature's highest gifts make the moral day arise. That is the office of Christ. We go to verse 22, 1 Corinthians 1. For the, Paul continues, For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. Now, those Greeks, that's especially, it's true of all Greeks, their culture was that way, looking for philosophical wisdom, especially true of their philosophers. On the contrary, the Jews asked for signs. Now, Jesus had given the Jews plenty of signs, and they ignored every one of them. I mean, he raised people from the dead. And he said, if I raise people from the dead in front of you, you're not going to believe. And he did it, and they didn't believe. Here's Adam Clark's quote on their attitude. There never was a people in the universe more difficult to be persuaded of the truth than the Jews. And had not the religion been incontestably proved by the most striking and indubitable miracles, they never would have received it. This slowness of heart to believe, added to their fear of being deceived, induced them to require miracles to attest everything that professed to come from God. They were so worried about somebody coming and taking away their 
their Jewish orthodoxy from them, that they ask for miracles, miracles, miracles. Remember, they ask for miracles. Well, here's an example in Luke 11:16, And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Of course, what they'd already seen, healing miracles. They wanted to see a planet move from its course or the sky split open or fire coming down out of heaven or, or words written in the sky. You know, something big. We've got to prove that, we're, that you were from God. So they wanted, they wanted more than just, they just wanted more than simple miracles, small miracles, healing miracles. They wanted big miracles. They also wanted to, to see a Messiah who would assume secular power and overthrow the Romans. Well, that's foolishness to God. You notice that Paul, again, the two cultures he has to deal deal with, the Jews and Greeks, he's appealing to, he's pointing out the weaknesses of both those cultures. We go to verse 23, 1 Corinthians 1. But we, on the contrary to these Greeks and Jews, we preach Christ, we Christians preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews expected a triumphant political Messiah. But we preach Christ crucified, which is the very opposite of a triumphant political Messiah. A condemned criminal on the cross is going to be our Messiah, the Jews thought. Oh, boy, that is a stumbling block to the Jews. And, of course, the Gentiles thought, oh, that's foolish. You believe in the resurrection of the dead? Oh, that's stupid. We're smarter than that. Who's the we? Well, that could be Paul and his fellow apostles, who they were. Luke, Timothy, people like that. Or it could refer more specifically to Paul and Apollos, because Apollos ended up, as we know from Acts, he refuted the Jews in the openly in the synagogues there in, 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 a, in Corinth while he was there. Or Paul could just be using the editorial we, meaning I preach Christ crucified, but we preach crucified. It's hard to say. We go now to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24 through 25. Paul continues, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Man's wisdom's like the moon, God's wisdom's like the sun. And you can't see the moon when you're looking straight at the sun. You don't need the moon, actually. All right, to those who are called, that's referring to Christians, both Jews and Greek Christians. Christ is God's power. Now let's look at some scriptures about Christ's power, or God's power. Romans 1, 4, and who, that's Jesus, has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Their power is conjoined with the resurrection because it took a lot of power to get a dead man out of the grave. Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Just as it takes a lot of God's power to get a dead man out of the grave, it also takes a lot of God's power to get dead sinners out of their dead sinful state and into life with Christ. Now, power is a wonderful thing. In fact, um, the charismatic gifts are referred to with power. Acts chapter 1, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the verse right off the top of my head. This was emphasized, dunamis, I think was the Greek word. It's emphasized by charismatics a lot when I used to be in the charismatic movement. And that was one thing I never found wrong doctrinally with the charismatic movement. It's true. There's lots of power verses that are completely overlooked usually by your typical evangelical. But I did notice that evangelicals would say, the non-charismatic evangelicals would say, well, you know, you're emphasizing power too much. We need to emphasize love. Love, 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 you know. Forget this power. Well, there's one thing I hate. It's a false dichotomy. I don't want people to emphasize power over love, but I don't want anybody to emphasize love at the expense of power because it took power to get me resurrected from my deathly, sinful, unregenerate state. 
It took power to get Jesus out of the tomb. And we're supposed to look down on that or say, well, we shouldn't emphasize that? Uh-uh. And of course we should emphasize love. We should emphasize them both. It's not either or, it's both and. Now notice Paul says God's foolishness. Of course, that's he's speaking ironically. It means foolishness in the eyes of the world, but not to us who are called. It's not foolishness. It's God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul continues, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Now to prove his point about why you Corinthians ought not to be so enamored of Greek philosophers, just look at yourself. You ain't wise. You're not big shots. You're not a bunch of college professors or a bunch of authors. You don't have a lot of people that don't have a lot of political power. You're not powerful. There are not many of you that are born noble, aristocrats. You're just average Joes. But you know the wisdom of Christ and his power because you've been resurrected from the spiritual dead. Now, when Paul says, consider your calling, not many are wise from a human perspective, not many are wise. He didn't want to say that there was no rich or powerful person who was ever saved. After all, right there in Corinth, you had some powerful people that were saved. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, as we read in Acts 18, he was saved. And then after he quit, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, he's mentioned in one of Paul's, I think it's Romans in the in the closing of the letter, if I remember correctly. Sosthenes is mentioned, which leads people to think it's the same Sosthenes. And he got saved. And he was a ruler of the synagogue. And people say that Gaius, who is mentioned as in Romans 16, 23, as the man who hosted the Corinthian church, he's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians somewhere. I can't remember where he's mentioned, but he's, he's, he's known to be at Corinth. And people assume that Gaius in Romans 16, 23, many people assume that's the same Gaius. They say, well, he must have been rich and wealthy because he hosted the church in his house. Now, everybody says, that's in Romans 16, 23, my host and the church in, in the house, and the, and the church, and the church, Gaius, who has hosted my host and the church, church's host. The question is, though, is what church is that? Is that the whole church in Corinth? Well, then he had to be awful wealthy to house a church that had been going for seven years with people like Apollos and Paul working in that church, getting it, getting the members saved and and expanding and evangelizing and expanding its numbers to think that that whole church could fit in one house. Well, Gaius must have been rich. I don't think that's what Paul meant, though. I think he meant the one particular house church that was meeting in Gaius's house. But at any rate, he owned a house, so he couldn't be totally poor. Erastus, the treasurer of Corinth, they found a flagstone, a paving stone in Corinth that has Erastus on there. He is called the treasurer of the ideal public commissioner, whatever he is, some public official. Well, he had some power in Corinth. And besides, like I said, Isaac Newton, he's pretty famous. Blaise Pascal, he's pretty famous. He believes. Abraham Lincoln believed. Robert E. Lee believed. I mean, there's a lot of people who believed that were big shots. But the point is, it's not because they were big shots that they believed that they get got their salvation. It's because they came in just like the most, like a slave, like, like some pitifully poor peasant in the backside of Russia comes in. Everybody comes in the same way by belief in Jesus Christ. And that's what's the amazing thing about Christianity is it permeates all levels of society. Jesus grabs his elect no matter what their educational background or their their aristocratic birth or their non-aristocratic birth or how much money they've got. It's amazing how people get people saved. Notice Paul says not many are wise from a human perspective. That means the way humans look on wisdom. 
KGV has after the flesh. It means the wisdom of the world acquired with human study without the spirit. Oh, I've spent all my life around people like that who think they're big shots because they know some, some little narrow, narrow slice of human wisdom. And, of course, nobody can know it all or, or even... A, or even a good bit of it, there's so much human knowledge has proliferated over the centuries. You would think that all that human knowledge would make these professors of knowledge, would make them a little more humble. But actually, the opposite seems to happen. The more they know, the more arrogant they get. And again, I'm speaking in generalities. There are lots of nice, humble professors. I've met them. But there's a lot that ain't. First Corinthians 127 Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Well, what's foolish and weak in the world? The strong are those who are rich in power and rich in money, uh, powerful in political power, and who have high aristocratic birth. Those are the strong. They are shamed. They're put to shame by, by what is foolish, rude and illiterate people, as the world thinks. God is using rude and illiterate people to transform the world. Think about all those barefoot evangelists in India. They're going all over India and getting people saved. Think about all those peasants in the backside of China going out and getting people saved by the bucket loads. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 29. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Of course, what is viewed as something is the people that just fall over... Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and people like that, you know, all their big shots. But unbeknownst to the big shots, these little barefoot evangelists are going around and the average Christians are spreading the truth of the gospel. And that is going to triumph over all the wisdom of the world. Verse 29, so that no one can boast in his presence. In other words, if you're a big shot, you can't boast that you got there because of your wisdom or knowledge. Now we go to Romans 1.30, which is an oft-quoted verse, a good verse. But it is from him, Paul continues, it is from him, from God, that you are in, i.e. in union with, Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now I always translate in as in union with, all right, it's from God. God puts us in union with Christ when he saves us. So if we're in union with Christ, we get some of Christ's nature in us. And Paul mentions four things. We get Christ's wisdom, we get his righteousness, we get his sanctification, we get his redemption, because it says Christ Jesus became wisdom for us. Jesus himself, in union with us, became wisdom for us. Well, how did he become wisdom for us? First Corinthians one twenty four. Paul has earlier said, six verses earlier, but to those whom God also called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Jesus is the wisdom of God and Jesus is in union with us. Therefore, we have God's wisdom via Jesus. Here's one of my favorite verses in John 7:17. This is because I am a reformed skeptic, one who tried to do exactly what the Greeks there in Corinth were doing, trying to find God using the power of reason. John, Jesus says this in John 7:17. 7, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. And I had to learn that I needed to forget trying to reason God out and figure him out. I needed to bend my knee to do his will. I needed to make my will conform to God's will. I needed to make my will to be to do God's will. That's what my will needed to be, to do what God wanted me to do. And then, as a result of that, I would know, I would have the wisdom of Christ. I would know whether Jesus is teaching is from God or not. 
Well, Jesus is also said to be our righteousness as we're in union with Christ. He became God-given righteousness. God-given, not our own righteousness. Romans 5.19, For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so also through the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So it's through Jesus that we're made righteous. We're also sanctified through Jesus. Of course, righteousness means to be declared legally innocent so that you're not subject to God's wrath for transgressing his law. Sanctification means to be separate from the world and dedicated to Christ or dedicated to God. Jesus is our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul, in the second verse of the book here, says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. How? In union with Christ Jesus. To those who are sanctified in union with Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.10 And by that will we have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus died so that we may be sanctified as well as justified. So Jesus in him. Jesus has become God-given sanctification for us. And also in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ, Jesus has become God-giving redemption for us. What is redemption? That's the process of being bought out of slavery to sin, death, and Satan, as Adam Clark puts it. Here's some scripture showing our redemption. Romans 3.24, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.23, and not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Ephesians 1.14, he is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4.30, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit, you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So our bodies are going to be redeemed from their current decrepit selves, and our, and our life, our soul, our life is going to be redeemed from, has already been redeemed from sin, because of, of Jesus' death on the cross. So that's a good verse. That's why people like this verse. Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Multiple choice question or fill in the blank question. What are four benefits from living in union with Christ? All of which benefits come from God. Number one, God's wisdom. Number two, God's righteousness. Number three, God's sanctification. And number four, God's redemption. Redemption because the purchase price to pay for the redemption of us out of slavery was his blood, his life. We go to the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Paul continues, In order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. In other words, Jesus did all this stuff. Jesus gave us wisdom, justification, sanctification, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He gave us all of that. So in verse 31, In order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. In other words, it was Jesus that did all that stuff. We didn't do it. The philosophers of the world didn't do it. And Jews seeking signs didn't do it. Where is it written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord? Here's a good place in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise man must not boast in his wisdom. The strong man must not boast in his strength. The wealthy man must not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. That's a good quote, Jeremiah. So why must we boast in the Lord? It's okay to boast in the Lord because you're giving glory to him when you say, oh, look what Jesus did for me. He gave me wisdom, righteousness, 
redemption, sanctification. But if you start boasting about how smart you are and look at my Porsche, look at my big swimming pool and my 5,000 square foot house and my $24 million mansion. No, you boasting in that, you're an idiot. Boast that Christ gave me righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. Christ gave us those things, because no man can give you that. No other man gave those things to you as a Christian, and you didn't conjure those things up as a human being. Couldn't happen. Ladies and gentlemen, we finish with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, and our next audio will start with chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul will continue with this theme of the Spirit being smarter than human wisdom, and he's going to talk a lot about how we learn from the Holy Spirit. So I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 